Welcome to Reliability Matters, a podcast for the electronic assembly industry. Each episode covers topics related to reliability, best practices, and environmentally responsible assembly techniques with insights from experts across the electronic assembly industry. Now, here's your host, Mike Conrad. Welcome back to the Reliability Matters podcast. I'm so glad you're with me today. Today, we're going to talk about low-volume electronic assembly. We all know who the big players are when it comes to solder paste printers, pick-and-place machines, reflow ovens, and other types of assembly equipment. But what choices does one have if they need to produce low volumes of electronic assemblies, such as prototypes and other low-volume applications? Let's face it, most assemblers can't justify a multi-million dollar production line for low-volume production. One solution may be to outsource the production to a contract manufacturer, but there may be specific circumstances which prevents that. In today's episode, we'll review some of the equipment options for low-volume SMT production, and we'll see if the barrier to entry for in-house assembly is lower than one might think. My guest today is Ed Stone. Ed is a sales manager at Mancorp, a provider of SMT assembly equipment for the EMS industry. Mancorp was founded 55 years ago, back in 1967. Just imagine how much our industry has changed over the past 55 years. I'd like to say Ed has been there from the beginning, but I think the company is just a little bit older than Ed. And speaking of Ed, let me welcome him to the program. Hey, Mike. Nice to see you. Hey, Ed. It's good to see you. Thanks for uh, being my guest today. Thank you. Usually when you and I see each other, it's an evening after a trade show and we're usually in a, a bar or a restaurant and you know talking about how awful or how good the show was, depending upon right. what year it was and what venue it was. But um, this is a little different setting today. Um, I, I do have to comment. I, I love your... Uh, images on your wall behind you, the, the helicopter and the, and the, oh, oh, those are actually, are they models or are they images? I can't tell. That's a, me. that's a model F-18. It's a 118th scale. It's about uh, 30 inches long. And there's wow. a little, there's a F-16 up there too. <laughs> Very good. Have I you love seen the aerospace stuff. So do I. I, I was the, the one dorky kid on the school ground play yard that Whenever I heard a noise in the sky, I'm the guy looking up, you know. <laughs> and, yeah, of course. And I could always spot the plane. I could tell you what kind of plane it was. If it was a commercial airline, I could tell you what airline it was and, you know, all that kind of stuff. I was I'm an aviation geek. Um, have you seen the new, the new um, um, Top, Gun? Top Gun movie, Maverick? Have you seen that? I have not. I have not. You know, the first Top Gun movie was uh, pretty impressive, but it was you know, most of the scenes were CG or models or whatever. Um, this one, from what I've, I've been told or what the, the production company is saying is that uh, they didn't want to do CG on this. They wanted to do all live action. And they had to get permission from the Navy to fly below the floor. The, you know, I forget how many feet off the ground was considered their, that's the bottom, right? And they right. had to get permission to do you know, very high speed runs 30 feet above the ground or, or, or something like that, which, and it, it, it was an impressive movie. It definitely, you want to see that on the biggest screen you can with the, with the giant subwoofers and great sound system, because it's an experience. Yeah. Fortunately, I mean, we're just a couple miles away from Miramar, which yeah. is uh, top gun, top gun right now. It's a, uh, or currently Marine 
Air Station Miramar. But we get to see F-35s and Ospreys and C-130s and F-18s all yeah, day, I've, every day. I've been down that area many times, and it's, it's surreal, you know, unless you live like you do in that environment and you're used to it. For someone who's not used to it and you see, you know, all these F-18s taking off and making the noise they make, it's, it's quite yeah. surreal. I, I wouldn't want to be on the uh, enemy end of one of those machines, right? Because no. just watching them practice is intimidating. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. Fun stuff. So, um, first of all, I should probably uh, reassure my audience that uh, this episode is not a sales pitch for any one company. It, uh, one thing that I, I realized, and I alluded to this in my intro, is that I interview a lot of um, equipment manufacturers on this show, and pretty much without exception, um, they're all very large companies, and they have very good, um, very uh, high volume in most cases, and, and also very expensive machines. That just goes hand in hand. That's not, a, that's not a, a critique at all. That just makes sense. And I've also interviewed many contract manufacturers on this show, you know, which provide a, a great service. If, if you can't or don't want to build it in-house, um, the standard MO is, well, I either build it in-house uh, and if I can't, then I will send it out to a contract manufacturer. Um, but I've talked to a few people in the industry lately, and, and, and there seems to be a third choice. If I don't have the equipment, but I really need for many whatever reasons they are, maybe it's ITAR reasons or you know, other security reasons, you need to keep the product in-house, but you don't have the equipment, and you can't justify going to the usual suspects and purchasing a million or $2 million line for this super secret, very, but very important project that you're working on, uh, there is an option. Uh, and it's, uh, I don't want to say fringe because it's definitely, you know, it's still in the mainstream, but it may be a lower uh, market share mainstream. And that is bring in lower volume equipment. Now, I've been around this industry for a long time, as have many of my audience, and Ed's been around a considerable amount of time too. And it used to be back in the day that, it, low end equipment or low volume equipment was also low end equipment. It was cheap and it didn't work very well. And I think a lot of that has changed. So I wanted to kind of refresh, take a, a fresh look and refresh the subject of low to medium volume surface mount assembly equipment and how far has it come over the years, um, how far away from its original reputation of, you know, you get what you pay for. Um, it, has it come, and um, no better person to do that, to, to have that conversation with, than my friend and colleague, uh, Ed, because Ed's been doing this a long time. So, you know, Ed, I know your company's portfolio of products is not strictly limited to low and medium volume. You, you also have equipment that offers higher volume. Um, so does everybody else. So that's, I really want to concentrate on the medium to low volume uh, in both semi-automatic and fully automatic configurations. So what types of customers fall into the category of purchasers of your type of equipment, um, uh, low and medium volume? Is there a particular classification they fall into? What type of work do they generally do? Um, can you give a little insight on that? Well, I mean, I think we sell to a lot of uh, military contractors, uh, aerospace companies, uh, universities, uh, national labs, 
But if you think about any of the large technology companies here in the United States, any of the ones that would come to mind, we sell to them as well because although they do do things in high volume, they do need equipment to do prototyping and development and no sense in tying up your $2 million SMT line uh, to knock out a few prototypes. So we sell to really the, the full spectrum of uh, customers. That's a good point because in my intro and a few minutes ago, I alluded to the fact that if you don't have the equipment, um, and you can't afford the you know the, the big stuff, then uh, you, there's another option, which is to get the uh, the lower volume equipment. But it, maybe you have a full line. I hadn't thought about that. Maybe you have a full line that's just busy pumping out pumping out assemblies. Um, right. Or maybe or maybe you have a lab and you don't want to put your your work in progress into a production line. So yeah, that's right. another another application as well. Um, that's interesting. So there are several real and perceived uh, barriers to entry when it comes to SMT assembly equipment. One of them is certainly price, right? That's, that's an obvious. Um, and the other might be uh, maybe lack of technical expertise. Uh, maybe it's a little bit intimidating to think, well, if I buy something to build in-house, now I have to hire people that are capable of running it. Um, so, but let's try and bust some of those myths. From your experience, what are the perceived barriers to entry for purchasing assembly equipment for an SMT line and, you know, compare that and contrast that to the actual facts. Well, I would say cost is definitely one of the perceived barriers as well as uh, qualified personnel to run the equipment. But a lot of times people don't realize, number one, that you don't need a uh, $2 million SMT line to do the work that you need to do. And a lot of times you already have the personnel uh, capable of, of, uh, launching this and getting it up and running. Um, you know, when you go to visit a contract manufacturer and you see some enormous surface mount line and everyone's running around with the anti-static lab coats and it's, it's just, you know, mind-blowing, you think there's no way I could possibly get into this. And then when you see uh, what the actual reality is of some of these smaller OEMs here in the United States and they have a, a small setup that might be in a, you know, 15 by 20 room, and uh, regular people running it, you know, they don't look like uh, scientists, you know, <laughs> picked up from some uh, obscure laboratory somewhere. Right, right. Um, from the, the, the equipment uh, that uh, you and other companies provide is available in both automatic, semi-automatic, um, manual uh, type configurations. Walk me through some of the advantages or disadvantages. I suppose it all depends. Every answer I ask, every question I ask, pretty much every guest on the show usually follows is followed up by, well, it depends, because everything is contextual. But what are some of the advantages for some people of um, manual to semi-automatic uh, process equipment? Um, uh, and what are some of the disadvantages of that for some people? So just kind of try and categorize what applications would be best suited for either fully automatic or semi-automatic or manual? Yeah, I mean, it, we offer equipment uh, or SMT lines in what we would call a batch type configuration, which basically you are printing a board and then physically taking it, putting it in the pick and place. It's being assembled. You're physically taking it from there, putting it in your reflow oven to be soldered. Um, that would be 
kind of more or less semi-automatic, or some people would consider it semi-automatic compared to a fully automatic inline setup where you have an automatic loader that's feeding an inline printer, going to a conveyor in your pick and place, another conveyor, reflow oven, board unloader. Uh, a lot of times it's going to depend on uh, volume and the product mix. A lot of our customers fall into the high mix, low volume. So having everything set up in line is not a huge benefit for them. Uh, also, depending on the speed of your pick and place machine, I mean, if your board has a thousand parts on it and your pick and place does 2000 parts an hour, well, it's going to be in there for a half hour. So you're not saving a lot of labor by adding conveyors and automatic loaders and things like that. Um, of course, if you're doing higher volume, you know, you're going to want to have something set up where it's just going to keep, you know, producing boards and they're going to go in one end and come out the other end. So volume is one of the considerations. But then there are also those what ifs, you know, you don't necessarily need a uh, big inline oven for low volume, unless of course your PCB size is 18 by 24, then a small oven is not going to work for you. So there are always those uh, uh, exceptions to the rule, which are going to put you into more advanced equipment or you know, more of an automated printer because you're doing very small parts or very fine pitch and so on and so forth. Yeah, that makes sense. So technology, as you well know, uh, and anyone even close to our industry knows, moves very quickly. The speed of technology is fast. And there was a time when the quality of a machine was directly linked to price. Uh, if, if something was too cheap, it wouldn't even be considered because it would just it would be an assumption made that, well, this is, uh, this is half the price of the mainstream, so it must be terrible. Um, you know, if we look at, at mobile phones, that's a great example of that, of that mindset. Um, one of the first mass-produced portable phones, handheld phones, was the Motorola Dynatac 8000X. Back in those days, everything had an X or Turbo or something. Um, and it sold in $1984 for $4,000, which is a little over $10,000 in today's dollars, in today's value. Um, and by today's standards, that phone would be a complete dinosaur. You know, it, it, it's worth $10,000 in today's money, and it wouldn't, it couldn't, compare at all to a modern phone, which sells for a fraction of the price and is, is literally quite a thousand times faster uh, and more reliable. So those perceptions degrade. And today, my experience just with consumer items is I no longer judge the potential or perceived reputation of a product by its price. Because I'm absolutely stunned by how much technology I can purchase for very little money. You know, I'm looking at all over my studio here. You know, I, I, I've got teleprompters and lights and monitors and mixers and all that. And 15 years ago, that would have been forty, fifty thousand dollars worth of equipment. And it's a fraction of that today. So that perception has changed. Has is that has that uh, change in mindset and change in a value relationship between, you know, reliability and, and, and performance and price. Has that changed also with equipment used in our industry? Um, it have, has the cost gone down and the value received gone up like it has on so many other products? Does that, does that question make sense? Yeah, it does. I mean, things are, are of course, relative. I mean, machines that were um, 
$20,000 for a small reflow oven 25 years ago. You know, those machines are $35,000 today. Um, but you can also find cheap ones out there. And there are some that are exceptionally cheap. And you do have to be careful. Um, you know, we do see there are pick-and-place machines out there in the industry today that people buy that are under 20K. And they claim specs comparable to our equipment and other higher-end equipment out there. And uh, they absolutely don't do that. I mean, you have to think, 25 years ago, I mean, when I was getting into this, 0402 size components was really the cutting edge. Today, people talk about, you know, 01005s on a regular basis, which is 1 16th the size of an 0402. Incredibly small. Yeah. Um, you have to have good equipment to do that type of thing. I mean, those cheap machines that are out there, they can build stuff that is 90s technology. But when you talk about the types of components used today, ICs with very fine pitch, 0105s, it's just not possible to do on low-end type equipment. You also have to look at the presence and, and speak to people from the company and see what kind of feeling you get. I mean, if something sounds too good to be true, usually it is. Um, so, so it sounds like the answer to the question is yes and no. Um, there are exceptions to the cost of a, of a piece of equipment and the value it can, it can provide. Um, and you can still get stung. So, yes. right. So price is still one of the flag, you know, red flag items, but, but it's not a rule like it used to be. You can still get Correct. good, a good price and, and a good return on that investment. Um, but just buyer beware. Yeah. I, I think that Correct. that Correct. will always be there. Those, those people will always be there, uh, in every industry. Ours not just related to ours. So I see a lot changing in the way um, companies market today and the way buyers select their vendors today. Um, you know, the old days of, the old days, <laughs> five years ago, the old days of, of purchasing equipment is if you needed to buy a printer, you went out to company A who was a printer manufacturer. Then if you needed to buy a pick-and-place machine, you went out to company B, which provided pick-and-place machines. And then if you needed a, a cleaning machine, you would reach out to yet another company or conveyors from still another company. Um, and you know everything was siloed, different companies, different specialties. And today, some of that is changing. Some of it has changed because uh, companies like ASM and ITW have purchased uh, a, a conglomerate of companies, right? Um, so they purchased all these company A, B, C, D, E, et cetera. Um, so technically you're buying from one company, but they're still separately run divisions within that. Um, your company, and maybe others like it, if there are others like it, specializes in, in really one source for multiple different products, right? So uh, what are the advantages or maybe disadvantages, again, it's contextual, of purchasing an entire production line from one company? Well, basically, uh, we can help throughout the whole process. If you're buying a printer from one company, a pick-and-place from another company, a reflow oven from the other company, there can be finger-pointing going on if you have issues. You know, the 
pick and place guy can say, hey, that's not a pick and place problem. It's a reflow problem or it's a stencil printing problem or uh, so on and so forth. I mean, with us, we're handling the entire process. So it all comes back to us and we're going to have to solve the problem, whether uh, it's printer related, placement related, reflow related, so on and so forth. Right. So you can't be like, like I'm in the cleaning business, as you know, and we can't, you know, the, the equipment companies like to blame the chemical companies and the chemical companies like to blame the equipment companies. But Exactly. But it exactly. is a, it is a. It all falls back on us. On yeah, right, right. It, that goes. So that, I guess that's one thing you, you don't put on your brochures, but one of the advantages of buying from a company like yours is there's only one person to blame. <laughs> right. It's a more efficient blaming process. Um, exactly. What types of questions, um, do you ask potential customers that would allow you to recommend an appropriate, um, the appropriate equipment or, or the type of equipment that would best serve their needs? What, what are your interview questions when you're trying to provide the most appropriate quote on products? Well, I mean, we need to ask them what, number one, what are you building? Uh, how many are you building? How complex are the boards? You know, how many unique components are on a on a PCB? How many total components are on a PCB? How many do you need to build in a week? How big is the board? Is there anything special or unique? Um, and then it, it really comes down to the math, you know, being able to select uh, machines that are going to be fast enough to keep up with their volume, machines that are going to be old, able to hold enough uh, tape feeders uh, to build the boards. Um, and basically do the job. I'm, every customer we talk to, we're recommending a, equipment specifically based on what they're building. It's, it's always different. Every customer is different. What questions should a customer ask their potential supplier to ensure, you know, either for vetting purposes or to ensure that um, they're getting the appropriate response, which would be the appropriate equipment recommendations. What questions should they ask you? Well, how long have you been around? Can I speak to some customer references? What is your service and support like? Do you stock spare parts? Things like that. Yep, good, just typical and buying service, questions. Service, service is one of the biggest things. I mean, that you'll find, especially with some of these inexpensive machines out there is you buy it and you're on your own. Um, and I know we're not supposed to be doing any kind of sales speech, but I mean, one of the areas where we really shine is supporting the equipment that we sell. How the, walk me through that. One of the, uh, if you go to company A for product A and company B for product B and company C for product C, each one of those companies specializes in that one thing. Right. And so they have sales or, or, or service technicians that only know their brand and the type, that type of equipment. In your world, that gets a little bit more complicated because you have to be the printer expert and the pick-and-place expert and the oven expert and the conveyor expert and the AOI expert, if you do all that. Um, how does that um, specialty and familiarity with all of those different machines from one company. How, how does that work? Uh, that's not your typical. That's not your typical service tech who can 
adjust the pick and place machine and then go adjust the squeegee pressure on the printer, right? Or, or do you have one well-trained, well-versed person or do you have specialty in kind of subgroups within your organization? All, all of our service techs handle everything from printers, pick and place, wave solder machines, reflow ovens, conveyors, and making it all work together. I mean, we do on-site installation and training. So when a customer buys a line from us, we'll basically be running their boards prior to the technician leaving. And so that's end-to-end -end on the line. It's not getting training on a printer and then the next day or next week somebody comes on the pick and place. We're going to spend a couple of days there with the customer and, and actually be doing everything end-to-end. -end. The nice thing is, is at the end of the day after you know the technician leaves and a week goes by and then they go to run it again and they forget a lot of the things that they were taught, it's one phone call and they speak to one guy and, and he can help them with anything that they need. Right. So if someone's contemplating building a new product uh, and, and they either don't have the ability to produce in-house or they don't have the capacity to build in-house, um, as I said earlier, there's two choices. They can, they can send it out to a contract manufacturer or they can purchase what they need for this project. Um, walk me through some of the specific considerations for determining um, building in-house or, or outsourcing the, the production. What are the advantages of, I don't expect you to sell me on the advantages of not buying your equipment. <laughs> I don't think you're right. very good at that. Uh, but uh, so let's take it the other way around. What, what are the advantages, knowing that they can just send it out and for X dollars a board get it produced without having to purchase anything or learn a new skill? What are the advantages of bringing that in-house uh, for, for that project? Well, there's always a, a development stage, uh, ramping up any product, getting all the kinks worked out, and so on and so forth, the prototyping aspect of it. And not having equipment, the problem is, is you send it to a contract manufacturer, they're happy to build the low-volume prototypes that you need. They charge a very high amount uh, for lower volumes. As the volumes go up, the cost per board of having assembly done becomes lower. But the other problem and the biggest problem and the biggest reason people buy equipment is when you send your prototypes off to be built, there's always a lead time involved. You know, the contractor is building boards for other customers as well. And your run of 10 or 100 boards is, is not on the top of the list as far as customers that they need to keep happy. So you kind of fall by the wayside and it gets done when it can be done. And a lot of times there's excuses why it's late and so on and so forth. But while you're waiting to get your prototype done, you're not moving forward. So having your own equipment, you know, allows you to be able to build prototypes and tweak prototypes in real time when you need to do so. And then, you know, you're actually able to do lower volume production. Once you have the equipment, it's like writing a term paper, you know, the writing of it, that's the hard part. But then after it's done, you could just keep hitting print and making as many copies as you'd like. Sure, sure. So, you know, one-time investment. With supply chain challenges that so many manufacturers are, are running into right now, um, does that factor into the decision to outsource or bring in-house? Is there, is there any advantage to building in-house based on the current supply chain shortages that we're seeing right now? Um, I mean, supply chain is going to hurt people building in-house or contracting out either way. I would say the, 
The benefit of doing it in-house, though, is you have your own procurement people who have your company's best interest first and foremost, and they're the ones out there sourcing parts for you. Um, going to a contractor, you know, he his procurement people or her procurement people uh, may be trying to source those same parts for other customers. And then where do you fall into the pecking order as far as preferred customers? Are you going to get that next batch of hard-to-get parts, or is it going to go to his favorite customer? Yeah, I would think maybe one of the other advantages to building in-house is you can more quickly perhaps change the design of the board, swap out different components, maybe switch to an old through-hole legacy part where you formerly had a surface mount part that you can't get right now. Uh, right. That might be, I would think if you are producing your own uh, product in-house, you have a little bit more control over stop the presses, redesign this part, continue continue on than you would if you had to contact your contract manufacturer that that, that might be um, you know a, a rock in the gears a little bit more than it might be if you had the ability to switch things on the fly, perhaps. Um, but, but, but I think true. you're right. Your greater point is, yeah, supply chain screws up everything everywhere. Um, it, it does. It but does. I, I think that you might, one might have a little bit more control if over what the options are, what the mitigation options are, if they're building everything in-house. Absolutely. I know the auto manufacturers are doing that right now. They have thousands of, of completed automobiles missing one board, and uh, one of their mitigation strategies is they've actually removed some options from some of the lower-end cars. Um, so if you wanted to buy a, a low-end GM product that had an option for a widget, they're no longer offering that object for the widget, and they're reserving what few they have for their Cadillacs and their you know, Denali's and, and things like that. So right. um, they're able, as a manufacturer, they're able to change the spec on the fly so right. that they could live in this new world of supply chain shortages. We're so, offering to install it later for you. You know, you buy the car, and then that feature will be available and installed by the dealer a year later. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I actually heard this is... A little bit off topic, but one car company, I want to say it's BMW, uh, made a decision, and I don't remember what the option was. I think it was seat heaters or whatever. I think it was a seat heater, seat cooler. Yeah. They made the option that if you did not purchase it at the time of the car, when you purchase a car, for $18 a month, they will activate it over the air. Right. So basically, they're putting that feature in every car, and if you purchase it, it works. And if you don't purchase it, you can use a monthly subscription, uh, right. which is a bizarre model. You know, that's, that's, um, that's, I've never heard of the auto industry doing stuff like that before, but that's, hey, here we are in a new world, right? Right. I guess it's cheaper right. to put it in and not get money for it than it is to only put them in on demand. I don't know. It's, it seems a little bit bizarre. So if someone's contemplating a, a low volume uh, surface mount line, um, let, Let's give them a, a general idea. I'm, I'm not asking you to divulge your price list and, and get, you know, put confidential stuff out. But in a very generic standpoint, um, what would be an example of the lowest price for an SMT line? And I know I'm not qualifying what that is, so maybe you can help me with that. And, and what would maybe the highest price be if they just kind of went all out um, from, your, from your world perspective? And what would kind of be an average price? Can, can you just help 
quantify and not just the price, but what type of line, or maybe give me a range, you know, from a bare bones line to a full line or something like that. What, what can someone expect? Well, <clears throat> one thing that's unique about our company is the price list is not a secret. Uh, you could actually go on our website and see pricing on everything. Um, to give you an idea, lowest cost to get into it, uh, laboratory type, manual type equipment is going to be, you know, under 15K. Uh, if you needed fine pitch capability, again, laboratory type equipment, maybe 30K. If you wanted equipment with an automatic uh, pick and place, a printer, a small reflow oven, uh, you're probably going to be more around the 70K range. But again, it's going to depend on uh, feeder requirements and things like that. I mean, that could drastically change the price of a machine. Um, on the real high end uh, with our stuff, and if you're talking about automatic loaders and unloaders and everything in line, it could be 250 to 350 K. So on the, uh, on the lab side, I, this was taken from your website, so it may not be, it may not, I think they're illustrations more than actual photographs, but is this more representative of a, a men, a manual stencil printer and a small batch oven, for example? You know, something like that configured with tape feeders and, Installation and training and everything like that. It's realistically going to be uh, 70 to 100 K. Okay. With, I would imagine the majority of that money is in that machine in the middle there. That that's that pick and place machine, right? That is correct. Yeah. And then on a more fully auto line, just like the, right. the example I'm showing on the screen right now, uh, which shows a stencil printer and a pick and place machine and some conveyors and a, an actual oven, not a batch oven, but a, you know, conveyor inline oven. Inline mm -hmm. oven. Uh, this would be in, you know, generally speaking, what kind of price range? That's a, approximately a $200,000 line. And it, it, again, it could depend on how many, uh, how many types of or quantity of feeders you require on the machine. And we have customers that don't need a half a dozen feeders. They build LED lights and things like that. They're placing the same component over and over again. And we have customers that need, you know, 200 plus feeders. Um, feeders have a cost. And that could be a driving factor in the cost of your line. Right. So the, I, I think sometimes when I think about if I had to purchase a surface mount line, um, it can be a little bit of a Alice in Wonderland. You know, I just went down a rabbit hole. Um, you know, I didn't know what I didn't know. So I think I, I need, you know, the three basic processes. I need a, I need a printer, a pick and place, and an oven. And right. remember the movie The Jerk with Steve Martin? Yeah. You were very young for that, but it was like a 70s movie. There's one scene where he was being kicked out of his house, and he said, I don't need this house. I don't need anything. I just need whatever it was, a tennis racket. That's all I need. And he picks up the tennis racket, and then he looks around, and he goes, oh, and, and my record player, and that's all I need. And then, oh, and, the, and next thing you know, he, you know, he's bringing basically all the contents of the house out. I think if I were to have to purchase a SMT line from scratch, I think I would say, oh, I just need three machines. And then, you know, you would be the, the great buzzkill. You'd go, Mike, you need a conveyor to connect those machines. Oh, yeah, okay, right. yeah, throw that in. And, oh, Mike, you need this. Oh, Mike, you need that. So um, what are the, in addition to the three basic processes of printing, placing, and soldering, uh, what other types of equipment are common in building an SMT line? Well, you know, through-hole, 
still hasn't gone away. There's a lot of components that aren't available in SMT, certain types of connectors and things like that, um, that are still through hole. A lot of people, a lot of people are still doing mixed technology. So they have SMT and they're also using through hole parts. So how are you going to solder the through hole? Are you going to have someone doing it by hand? Are you going to buy a wave solder machine? Um, a selective solder machine? A lot of times now, if it's a double-sided board, surface mount on both sides, through-hole components, wave solder won't work. So you need a selective solder machine. Are you doing military aerospace medical type products that are class three, high reliability? Then you also need a cleaner. Um, are you using moisture sensitive devices? Because then you need a dry box to store them. There's a lot of stuff. <laughs> There's a lot of uh, supplementary type things that, that you could need, sure. So the we've talked many times on the show about the silver tsunami, the, the grain out of our industry. Um, people who have been around this business a long time are retiring and we're just now seeing, it's taken a while, but we're just now seeing younger people coming in, fresh blood coming in. And um, there's a difference between how millennials, for example, conduct their life and, and, you know, research equipment and, and whatever it is that they get to do uh, as they travel up their, their career path. And there's a difference between the way they do it and kind of traditional ways. I remember you know, I, I started in this industry in 1985, and back in the day you'd put windshield time in with your sales rep and you'd go make sales calls. And you walked into the visitor lobby, you gave the receptionist a box of chocolate or something, and you, know, you, you walked your way down through the offices and cubicles and said hi to everyone along the way and asked how their kids were. And then you sat in a conference room and you had a meeting. Uh, those days are largely gone. Uh, there's usually not a receptionist to give a box of chocolate to. There's a phone <laughs> and you're right. in this locked lobby. And if there's a meeting room, it's there right off the lobby. Uh, so they don't have to take you into the factory and try getting an appointment these days with anyone. It's, it's virtually impossible. Everything's converted to a digital world. Um, have you seen a difference in your tenure at Mancorp with how customers are interfacing with suppliers like, like yourself? And uh, how have you guys um, addressed those and responded to those, those changing needs? I'd say luckily for us, uh, Henry Mann, my big boss was kind of always ahead of the curve on this uh, topic because when he started, he did things the old fashioned way and drove to customers and, you know, showed them samples of things and bought them baseball tickets and took them out to lunch. But uh, at the same time, when you're doing sales that way, you can only visit so many customers in a given day. Um, you know, you have one good prospective client and then you're going to try to get a couple more in there while you're in the area, uh, which are going to be uh, not as likely to be good customers, so on and so forth. And, you know, we started doing a printed catalog. Uh, when I started, we were sending out 50,000 color catalogs uh, at a time. And uh, then we started doing our website, which we were one of the first ones that had a, a really good priced website, showed everything there. And so we were ahead of the curve as far as that goes. I think shopping for things online is something that the the younger generation is very accustomed to and used to. Um, 
unfortunately, it's not Amazon. You don't order a pick and place and get it tomorrow. Um, not yet. But I think, yeah. But I think the you know the younger generation they're very DIY. They're very creative. I mean, I think that's um, a, a great thing. I think they're very accustomed to using technology. Um, you know, but at the same time, there's a lot to be said for us older folks in the business. Um, I saw a customer come in an inquiry from a guy and I recognized the name from the nineties. And at the time, this gentleman was a, the president of a company that was a good customer of ours. And I thought, I, you know, it's, it's a relatively common name. Could this really be the same guy? I called him and I asked, you know, are, is that you? And he said, yeah, that's me. And he works for a very big company in the, in the industry. They brought him out of retirement uh, to do some special processes that related to wave soldering and, and things like that, that, you know, the, the newer generation, they just didn't have the skill set that he had. So he's, uh, he's an older gentleman, but, you know, best in the field. And that's why he's doing what he's doing. Yeah. yeah there, there are companies that embrace that the idea of having – you know, a technical fellow or, you know, or a sage, someone, a product matter, a subject matter expert that they keep and they become the resource for cleaning or coding or soldering or whatever for the entire global footprint of that company. You know, I can think right. of Doug Pauls at Collins Aerospace, who's, you know, the cleaning and coding guy. I can think of Dave Hillman, uh, also now retired, but uh, from Collins, who, and both Doug and Dave were, subject matter experts that the company kept on and, and that's all they did. You know, they worked within that subject, but those days are gone. You know, folks like Doug and Dave and, and so many others are leaving company They're retiring. And I'm not sure if every company is going to groom a replacement for them, uh, which puts a lot of, um, it, it, it causes customers, for better or for worse, and, and I fear mostly for the worse, to seek their technical information from us, from, from us suppliers. Now, yeah. I say better or for worse because you know some suppliers will provide good best practice information uh, and some will just want to hawk their gear, right? So it, it, you're, you're, you're kind of putting the, the fox in the and to guard the hen house, right? It, the fox might right. eat the hens uh, or they might guard them. It could go either way, but that's, that's a concern. I think one advantage that your company specifically had is I remember the days of those postcard mailings and, and catalogs and things like that, you know, particularly from yeah. your company. But your company was one of the first, as I can recall, to embrace the internet. You know, we did that, um, but you basically took a catalog and put it online. And right. That was not a common thing back in the day. Everyone was still advertising in magazines and, and you know, you circle the number on the bingo card, you know, and, and someone will mail you a brochure, you know, that, that whole stuff. You guys went digital really early. And um, uh, that, you know, now everyone's digital, but that probably helped you, right? That probably helped you a lot. Um, when everyone was learning, you guys were already there. Uh, and right. probably during the pandemic, I would assume too, that, you know, whatever person wasn't in the digital age before the pandemic certainly is now, you know, uh, 
they've expanded their vocabulary uh, by at least one word called Zoom, right? <laughs> Zoom yeah, now has yeah, a whole new sure. meaning. Um, so, and they probably began every meeting with someone saying, you're on mute. <laughs> that's, that's just, right. that's the way it, it worked back then. But uh, you guys really were kind of ahead of your time. You're pioneers in the digital world. Um, and yeah, that's probably helped you now uh, and hurt you now because you guys have made a very brave decision. I don't know if it's a crazy decision or a brave decision. Time will tell of posting all your prices online. And that's, that's a taboo for our industry. You know, there's it always, is. there's the secret price and the other secret price. And this person's getting the best price, but there's really another tier of best pricing. I mean, it's a very uh, cat and mouse kind of cloak and dagger game. And you guys just throw it out there. So that's, um, you've got to have a lot of confidence in your, in your pricing model if, if you're willing to post it on the internet for all of your competitors to see, you know, sure. the, the guys that are making stuff that may not be as good. Um, they know what price to beat. So that's, that's a pretty, pretty, um, bold decision. Uh, but I'm sure that works out well, you know, obviously you wouldn't do it if it didn't work out well. Well, that's the price. <clears throat> yeah, that, it is the price. Yeah. Why, why beat around the bush and go through iterations of quotes and, and all of that stuff. Where do you see the, future of surface mount equipment and the sales and support and the technology where you've been around a while. Uh, you've seen how many changes our industry has made just since you started. Where do you think we're going? What, what's the trajectory? I mean, there's going to be more miniaturization. I mean, as far as equipment, if products weren't getting more complex and smaller and using more challenging type parts, people would still be running their 1990s pick and place machine. The fact is, is these older, older equipment, uh, it can't do the types of parts that are out today. The 01005s, you know, everything now is, is becoming more and more integrated as far as products. You know, your, your wristwatch is now also a GPS and also a fitness tracker and all these other things. And so you're having to use, um, smaller ICs with finer pitch and more leads and, and the constant development and new products uh, coming out is really what's driving uh, the technology and equipment, you know, to be able to do those type of things. Uh, one of the questions I meant to ask you a little earlier, so let me just throw this in before we wrap up. Uh, can you provide one or two examples or case histories? You don't have to mention the company name, but of someone that that decided to bring manufacturing in house or to create a, a carve out a new line, maybe a lab line, um, and what are the challenges they had to overcome, and what were the benefits they received from the effort for overcoming those challenges? Well, usually with uh, the majority of our customers are OEMs here in the United States, and I would say the biggest benefits are going to be lead times uh, that they can produce products uh, as they need them to ship them more of a just in time type uh, philosophy rather than ordering large quantities from a contract manufacturer in order to be able to get a better price. And then they sit on a lot of inventory. So they save money on inventory. Um, their lead times are better and so on and so forth. As far as hurdles, I mean, one thing I could think of recently is we had a customer. Now this is a, they've been running for, several months now and, and are, are doing quite well. 
but in the very beginning they had some issues and they were for whatever reason hesitant to reach out they they struggled to try to correct issues uh, themselves more or less assuming that they were on their own and when they had mentioned this to uh, a counterpart of mine he said you know why didn't you speak to a service tech sooner because this is really a relatively straightforward issue that you're having and uh, no need to be scratching your head. I mean, I always tell people, if you're scratching your head for more than five minutes on this problem, pick up the phone. That's why right. we have service techs. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, Ed, uh, this has been a fascinating uh, conversation. I really appreciate you being on the show. Um, last question, any advice for uh, someone who is contemplating bringing products in-house? Um, you know, besides call Ed at the following number, that's one good piece of advice. But outside of that uh, salesy thing, what kind of general advice would you give to someone who's contemplating um, bringing a surface mount line in-house? I mean, do your research. Uh, contact some companies that offer this type of equipment. Um, and again, I know this is not supposed to be a sales spiel, but I mean, what we do is basically consult customers on what are they doing. And I could, in a nutshell, help you pretty quick figure out whether or not it makes sense to buy equipment and what equipment would work and what it's going to cost. I mean, you got to do your research and speak to some people in the know and, uh, you know, get that advice and, and, and find out. Yeah. Um, I think the challenge in selling equipment in any industry, not just ours, is you have people come in that are either already kind of savvy, they kind of know who the players are and what the prices should be, and then you have people that are novices and, and have no idea. So you can give one price to one person who's totally impressed that goes, that's a great price. And you can give the exact same price to another person who thinks it's you know, five times higher than what they expected. <laughs> you know? right, right. That's always the, uh, the dilemma is, um, you know, trying to frame in context, what is value? What is not value? What is a good price? Not a good price. You know, how, um, how much effort does it take to run? How much effort does it take to train? Um, there's all these expectations, some of which are based on, on reality and some of which are based on desire, uh, and they right. don't always line up. So that's always a challenge for any company is to steer a customer into, uh, the right product for them. Um, if you undersell or oversell, you end up with a you know, a problem customer or, or a customer with a problem with you. So that's right. always been the, the the hard part is knowing when to say no, knowing when it's not right for them, and and knowing how to steer them to make the proper decision that works win win for everybody. Right. At, at the end of the day, it's a tool. And you know what they say about buying good tools. You buy it once and, and you're done. You buy cheap tools, you end up replacing them and they don't work. And, my, my dad, God rest his soul, was, you know, he was an absolute fan of craftsman tools. If you needed a tool, son, go to craftsman. You'll only buy it once because right. you could drop it into a volcano and have it melted down. And if you can bring in the fragments, they would replace it for you, right? Right. They, right. they didn't even need a receipt. If it said craftsman on the handle, they would right. just replace anything broken so that it lasted forever. And right. so, yeah, that was, and now, of course, you know, I, I buy a, a cheap tool set and 
I, I crank down on the uh, on the socket wrench and and it breaks or the you know what not the same anymore. But you do kind of get what you pay for. And one of the earlier things we talked about is is that really true? Do you get what you pay for? Um, and I think there are starting to be some exceptions to that because you can get some really good good product, high value product out there in any genre of of, of description uh, for way less than one would expect. So I think that rule is a little bit altered. Um, you know, I can buy a pretty gnarly 4K 60 or 70 inch TV for three hundred dollars. You know, which was thousands of dollars just not just a few years ago. So. Um, the real the perception may be changing a little bit, and the thing is, you know, cheap tools. It's not going to break when you don't need to use it. It's going to break while you're using it. <laughs> Absolutely, and you and you need it. Yeah, and yeah. you need it to work. And it's not your job to figure out how to make the tool. It's your, you know, you just need it to work. That's right. Well, Ed, thanks for carving out this time. Uh, I really appreciate it. If you'd like to contact Ed. I'll put Ed's contact information in the show notes. If you're listening to this podcast on your favorite podcast app, then click on the show notes and you'll see information um, about Ed's contact information. And if you're watching this on YouTube, uh, then click right down here somewhere. There's a button that says show more. Click on the show more button and I'll have uh, Ed's contact information on there. So Ed, it's great to see you again, my friend. I, I look forward to seeing you in person. I don't know when that's going to be. Maybe uh, in November at the uh, Surface Mount Technology International Show. Maybe at Apex the, the following January. But one of these days, uh, we'll have to catch up. Absolutely. Absolutely. Nice seeing you again, Mike. Yeah, same here, Ed. Thanks a lot. All right. Have a great afternoon. Well, that's another episode. Thanks for listening to or watching the Reliability Matters podcast. Don't miss an episode. Be sure and subscribe to Reliability Matters on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or on our newest channel, Amazon Music, or virtually wherever you get your podcasts. We seem to be everywhere. A special thanks to Circuit Assembly Magazine's PCB Chat at PCBChat.com and Ascendo Reliability at Reliability.fm for syndicating the show. Thanks for your questions and episode suggestions. Please keep them coming. Send comments and episode suggestions to mike at mikeconrad.com. Just keep in mind that's Conrad with a K. And be sure and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app. Or if you're watching this on YouTube, click the subscribe button and the bell icon to be notified when new episodes are released. We release new episodes on the second and fourth Tuesday of each month. So once again, thanks so much for being part of the Reliability Matters podcast family. Thanks for watching or listening. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay happy, and perhaps most importantly, keep doing it right. And I'll see you again in two weeks. Thanks for listening to the Reliability Matters podcast. Join us on the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for new episodes of Reliability Matters.